Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Everyone Has a Story, talking about mental health. I'm delighted to be here today with Jewel. Jewel is a singer, songwriter, actress, and best-selling author. Through her career, Jewel has earned 26 Music Award nominations, including Grammys, American Music Award, MTV, VH1, Billboard Music Award, and Country Music Award, winning eight times. Jewel is a passionate advocate for mental health. Her Inspiring Children Foundation has spent two decades helping young people who are struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations, and other mental health conditions. By speaking out about her own experiences, she continues to open up conversations about mental health and well-being. So welcome, Jewel, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So the topic of this episode is around how we support young people who have mental health issues, but maybe we can start by talking about your personal journey. Sure. I'm from Alaska. My family were pioneers that helped settle the state. So I come from a family of people that are not adverse to big challenges, which was a sure gift. There was a lot of gifts in my family. I have a highly creative family, a lot of storytellers. Everybody writes and sings and is very creative, very connected to nature. But there was also, you know, bitter fruit that grows alongside the sweet. And my mom left when I was eight. My dad took over raising us and he had had a lot of PTSD from his own abusive childhood from Vietnam. And he started trauma triggering after the divorce, which we didn't know that, right? We didn't know those words. He just started drinking to try and handle his anxiety. And he became abusive when I was about eight or nine. And I ended up moving out at a young age. I moved out at 15 because I thought I could just, you know, live in a cabin with a guy that was mean, or I could just go live in a cabin by myself. So I started paying rent at a very young age, getting myself through high school. And I realized when I moved out that kids like me end up becoming a statistic. The odds of my future working out were really slim because I was able to identify. I had learned what I call an emotional English. I had learned an emotional language in my household and I could recognize it was the same language my dad was taught as a child. And I could extrapolate. It was the same emotional language his dad was taught as a child. And that as much as we have a genetic inheritance, we also have an emotional one. And I knew I could go to school to learn Spanish or French, but I didn't know where to go to learn a new emotional language. And that was daunting because I didn't want to feel like my life was over at 15. That's a really depressing thought to think, you know, if happiness was not taught in my home, was it too late? Was it a teachable skill? Was it a learnable skill? And why on earth are we not taught about these things in school? Why aren't we taught mental hygiene and emotional hygiene? the same way we're taught dental hygiene. I mean, our teeth are nowhere near as important as learning how to curate our thoughts, learning not every thought and feeling is a fact, because when you know that you're going to take better care of yourself overall, it's going to affect every area of your life positively. And we know that people that struggle with depression, struggle with self-care physically, all kinds of things. So anyway, I set off on this really ambitious mission when I was 15 to learn a new emotional language. It's been what has inspired me my entire life. I had panic attacks. I was agoraphobic, had an eating disorder. I was shoplifting. I was homeless. I definitely went through it. And by the time I was discovered, 
I almost didn't sign the record deal because I knew again, kids like me with my emotional baggage end up becoming a statistic. If God forbid you get famous. I mean, that's every movie you've ever seen about every celebrity. And so I promised myself that I would continue making sure my number one job was to learn how to be a happy whole human. My number two job would be to learn how to be a musician. And I've always kept my commitment to that. I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of. My entire life has been spent innovating in this field, creating exercises, things that were practicable, things that put my consciously being present to work, to change habits. And now I've been able to develop that into curriculum that helps other kids like me, adults like me, that may not have access to traditional therapies, traditional support groups. It's not they're not out of luck. You know, there's a lot that can be done to take charge of your own happiness. And that's what I love doing. So essentially when you were discovered and you became famous, it kind of became your platform to propagate this knowledge that you experienced in some way. Is that right? You know, as somebody who was on the receiving end of, of charity, who needed help, I recognized the value of community and just how, how much helping matters even in small ways. And so starting, you know, foundation was one of my first goals. I think we owe it to help one another. We owe it to pass on what we've learned, what took me 46 years to learn. Hopefully won't take somebody else 46 years to learn. Can you tell us a little bit about what your foundation is doing, the, the programs that you are implementing and what you're seeing in your work and the impact that this work is creating? Yeah. I have a foundation called the Inspiring Youth Foundation. Uh, we're basically a whole human school where we teach people and children how to emotionally regulate, how to have a psychology and mindfulness tools that help them take charge of their own happiness to learn to curate their thoughts, their feelings. We teach them entrepreneurial skills and we give them a tennis racket. We really love to arm and equip people that are struggling, youth that are struggling. Um, you know, during COVID, all of our numbers went up. I mean, our country's numbers, suicide is up 70%. And that was pre-pandemic. The call lines to suicide hotlines are up 300%. So people are really struggling. And for about the last 18 or 20 years, we've been developing tools that we know work. You know, it's not a hoping it works. It's we are able to see results that are trackable, that the kids themselves can see, that the parents can see. And it leads to amazing things. We have a 99% success rate for college scholarships. Almost 90% of them are Ivy League level. And that's just a side effect. You know, that isn't our goal. That's just a side effect of teaching kids how to be effective in their lives, how to be happy, how to take care of themselves. Can you tell us a little more about what specific programs and exercises perhaps, and you know, maybe a some theoretical or experiential foundation behind them? Sure. We don't have psychologists on our staff. We're friends with a lot of psychologists. It's a curriculum that we've developed that's been proven to work thanks to neuroplasticity. And it's a lot of stuff I stumbled on when I was homeless during that year of homelessness. I realized a lot of things. I realized that you know, the word mindfulness wasn't around and it might be good just to take a minute to define mindfulness. Mindfulness is being consciously present. That's it. And there's a lot of things that build the muscle, right? That build our ability and our endurance to be consciously present for longer and longer periods of time. 
So when you're meditating, your goal is to try and be consciously present during the five minutes you meditate. And that's hard, right? Our mind wanders off, which is okay because every time we realize we're lost in thought and we come back to the present moment, you've built a new neural pathway that's reinforcing and teaching your brain, wait, we want to be present. We don't want to be distracted. And so I look at meditation as a, as a bicep curl. They've actually been able to prove that it can grow folds in your frontal lobe and it can shrink your amygdala, which is in eight weeks. It's incredible. So it really is a legitimate workout. Lots of things can help you learn to become present walking in nature. I used washing my hands when I was young, when I would wash them, I would really just feel the sensation, the sound of the water, the feel of the soap. And I would use that as an invitation to make myself be present Then I learned to kind of do mindful stairs was my next thing. And I would mindfully, every time I hit stairs, my brain knew I'm going to feel my left foot. I'm going to feel my right foot. And so those things are just things I made up. You can, that's why they do tea ceremony, right? That's a way to learn to be consciously present. It can be anything. For me, the trick is meditation won't change your life. It won't change habits, right? For us to change our lives, we have to change our actions. For us to change our actions, we have to change our thoughts. To change our thoughts, we have to be present. And so it has to be using mindfulness, conscious presence as a doorway to action. And so for some reason, I, and I don't know why, I was good at writing songs and I was good at inventing little exercises for myself that put mindfulness into motion. A good example of that would be I noticed something that I called the, the anatomy of addiction. I was very addicted to shoplifting and negativity. (laughs) And while I didn't do drugs, I was addicted to something that was potentially going to end me up in jail and being homeless. I knew that could, you know, I could be dead or in jail. And so I noticed that, you know, if we're able to be addicted, that's pretty interesting. Why, why do we have the biological ability? I don't think it's because God made a mistake and it's like, sorry, humanity about the addictive part of your brain. It must work for us. And we must've forgotten how to make it work for us. And if you think about it, we get addicted to a lot of stuff. Habits are the addictive process. That's all it is. And so I started to look at the anatomy of addiction and how can I get addicted to better things and to give myself a break because I was addicted to shoplifting because I believed it helped me sincerely. You know, I sincerely felt cared for (laughs) as odd as that sounds. It made me feel good. And so I had to look at what I called the triad, um, which is a before, during and after, you know, I could see before was me feeling stimulated, me feeling scared. During was my response. I stole. My reward was the after. I mean, I learned years later, this is called a habit loop and it's actually been studied, but I stumbled on it on this very intuitive way. And I realized I couldn't change my stimulus, right? Being homeless wasn't an overnight fix, but I always had a lot of power over my response. And so I started to trade out writing for stealing And I became a very prolific songwriter, not because I wanted to be famous. I became a prolific songwriter because I needed to replace stealing and I stole a lot. So it meant I was starting to write a lot and it didn't feel good at first because stealing is a lot more exciting than sitting down alone and writing in your notebook. And that got me really curious because I started to realize my body only experienced two states, dilated and contracted. 
that was it. Every single thought, feeling, or action leads to one of those two states. And so I started to, again, using mindfulness, being consciously present, I would notice when my body was dilated. And I had a section in my notebook called dilated. And I had sections for thoughts, feelings, and actions. And I just started to take note. And I saw patterns, right? The thoughts that dilated me were observation, curiosity, the joy, gratitude, the actions that dilated me were exercising, sleeping, getting out in nature, connecting with friends, you know, the, so I started to write those out. And then also for contracted when I was tight and anxious, I wrote down thinking, feeling, doing, and there's a pattern. I always contracted when I got negative, when I started playing my little scary movies in my head, when I disconnected, when I isolated, when I stole, because excitement is actually contractive. And a lot of people don't quite get that. And so these are the types of things we teach our kids. They have all been proven to work. We have neuroscientists and friends that are, um, you know, heads of McLean Institute at Harvard, for instance. And so these are the types of philosophies and then breaking them down into those exercises, like writing down your list of what dilates you and what contracts you. Because there's a really interesting thing. If you look at addiction and you look at drugs and drug use, what do drugs do? One of two things, dilate you or contract you. So you can see which of those states you're struggling with getting in on your own by looking at what drugs you're attracted to. And then you can start to develop exercise for things that'll dilate you in a healthy way without the use of a drug. We have to learn these skills. We have to learn what do you do with pain? Nobody gets out of life without pain. Nobody. So we have to figure out what to do with it. You know, all of our hearts are destined to be broken. It's what we do with the pieces that make us extraordinary. And somewhere from going from a village to living in an urban environment, we forgot human skills. And my big passion is creating practicable curriculum, human skills, if you will, for our foundation and the businesses that we do. I almost feel that we need a parallel program for parents, right? I think a lot of these issues are propagating through parents and no one teaches you to be a good parent. No one teaches you how to understand your child and every child is different and how to support them in better ways. And is there a kind of a parallel track for engaging parents in order to be able to help children more? I think in general, the issue of engagement in these programs is, you know, I always find it challenging because it requires work. It's not an immediate fix. If you're addicted to shoplifting or drinking or drugs, it's the reward is very immediate and it's very gratifying. Well, here, if you need to put so much work and you need to meditate and you need to watch your hands being washed and that could, you know, could be an obstacle. How do you think about engaging kids and thinking, uh, helping them think about long-term goals? There should be programs for all humans. Yeah. Um, it's why we've worked hard. I created a language arts curriculum for public schools that have these skills baked into them so that in English class, you're also learning these skills. Um, we're creating a culture company for adults through scaling through companies, culture companies for businesses to give people this. Because I believe if we can solve pain points for humans any age, they're going to show up better at work. They're going to show up better at school. It's valuable. It's important for employers to 
invest in this type of curriculum because they're going to have more productive employees, you know, for nothing else, do it for that. I think for engagement, the best thing I've found is pain. When people's lives are painful, it causes them to search. When you feel good, you don't tend to search, you know, nobody goes to therapy when they're on top of the world. People go to therapy when they're really in a crisis. Crisis will inspire you to try something new. And what I tell my friends and my kids is being dysfunctional is hard work. It's exhausting being dysfunctional. It's depressing. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Like, you know, the ending of that movie and you get a chance to intervene and it is hard work, but at least there's light at the end of the tunnel. So that's a bet I'd rather take and to kind of build our grittiness. Like we got this, we're built to evolve. We're built to grow. We're built to change. We just need people that help us break it down into doable steps. And it takes more than talking. You know, I think therapists need to do more than talk. You need to have metrics and what are your goals and how do you know you're succeeding? And if you're not seeing your life change, you need to fire your therapist. Your therapist should welcome you firing them because it's just not the right fit. And sadly, a lot of people think if their therapy isn't working, they take it egocentrically, right? They think they're broken. It's not the case. It's just not the right fit. I don't think humans are broken. Our soul is not a teacup. I think we just have to get rid of a lot of programming, a lot of false thought that really isn't authentic to us because those inauthentic thoughts make us feel like crap. And so coming at it from the idea that you're not broken, you just have to do this archaeological dig back to your authenticity. That's much more doable than going, I think I'm broken. That feels impossible to fix. Our program for adults is a free website. It's called jewelneverbroken.com. If adults are interested in looking, there's just really simple, practicable exercises. The other question that I have is, it's very challenging to make this change and make a dent in mental health and in children's mental health through foundations or nonprofits or charitable fundraising. How do you think about integrating it into health systems? So this help is available to anyone who needs it, not, you know, not only people who can um, afford therapists and can afford firing therapists and hiring therapists. It's very challenging. How would we make this readily available without having people jump through hoops? Yeah, for I love this question because this has been what we've been trying to solve for for 20 years is how do you create scalable tools that are practicable, that put mindfulness to motion, that put it to work? Because you have to look at both sides of that equation. You have to help people do things that build their ability to be present. And then once they're present, you have to have them do small doable steps that they can tackle one at a time to start getting results. And often I think the field of mindfulness, even the field of psychology can be very, very philosophically driven, a lot of talking, but there's not a lot of curriculum. It's not baked down into a lot of doing. And I think that's where we're missing. And so for me, it's been about building curriculums that can overlay in language art schools building programs that can overlay in company curriculum. Um, I think we have to start thinking of scaling in places we already are, where humans are congregating, because I don't know, I just think that's what I find the most elegant, but I'm sure other people will find other ways of doing it. 
I would love to see obviously reform in psychiatric wards. Rehabilitation means teaching people. You know, I have a friend whose girlfriend had a nervous breakdown during COVID and it's her first nervous breakdown. A doctor came in, talked to her for five minutes, said she was bipolar, said she would be the rest of her life and told her sister that most of this ends in suicide. The hell is that? Like, that's not helpful. (laughs) She may or not even be bipolar and she's not given one skill to manage her anxiety because I guarantee you she was starting to use anti-anxiety drugs. She was starting to use things to stay awake and was never taught what to do with anxiety. And those things snowballed into a, a breakdown. Somebody needs to go back and help her feel like, A, there's hope. And this isn't, doesn't have to be. And if it is, we'll get through it. But nobody's giving her those skills. She's just released into the world. Now, what does she want to do? She wants to feel denial. She wants to say that I have no problem, never had a problem before, never will again. Because psychologically, what's the alternative she was given? She was told she'd commit suicide. So this woman's in a tough spot and the system has failed. And that's where I think we need better systems, you know, because we don't have usable mental health tools pretty much anywhere in our country. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And our story, also the story of Compass is, you know, built on our personal experience of being on the receiving end of the mental health care. I'm a physician and so, but not a psychiatrist. And in my practice, I wrote a lot of prescription for antidepressants. And I never thought as an internist beyond what happened to these patients when they go into the world and the prescriptions are not working. And only when we became on the receiving end of mental health care, I realized how far it is from the way the general medical illness is managed. You know, a friend of the family had kidney stones. He went to the emergency room. He, you know, he was diagnosed and the next day he was pain-free. That's not the case at all for, you know, any psychological or mental distress. You're really extremely lucky if you get into the system and you get help you need and effective help with no side effects. And I think there is a combination of a difficulty of understanding biological mechanisms combined with human experiences because everyone's life and everyone's life story and response to adversity or anything that comes your way is is very different and combined with unique biology it creates unique human experiences and how do you account for billions of different experiences and how do you help people navigate it i agree with you that it's it's extremely important to raise children who can recognize these experiences value them and then able to get the best out of them like you said you know with What's you, what you make out of your adversity or what you make out of your pain? Uh, and how do we as humans navigate this whole range of experiences from just general difficulties to real pathology? And there are cases when you know, people are bipolar, people are clinically depressed and they need professional help. But this whole spectrum and range of experiences is very difficult to manage, to navigate, and to get help to people. So it's a huge, huge challenge in mental health care. I think that it is, it is, you know, and it's dynamic. And something, you know, as an internist, you know, is everybody's 
path to healing and their path to whatever their illness is, is very unique. You know, I realized very young, you know, the, the physical problems I was having weren't a siloed thing. It was a, affected by my thoughts and by my feelings, by being homeless. It's a, it's a complex thing that creates whatever the pathology is. And mental health is the same. You know, what is making somebody sad is unique. It's unique to them, but there are things that are very general. You know, if you can start looking at anxiety as an ally, not as your enemy, not as something you're trying to disassociate from or medicate, but your very best friend. And the reason I say that is because, you know, our anxiety is like a car's alarm. If somebody's trying to steal the car, or the car's in danger, the alarm goes off. Our anxiety should work that way. It's our body's way of saying we're not in agreement with a thought, feeling, or action or an environment. And our bodies are screaming at us that we're not in agreement with our own life. And all we do is try and turn the alarm off. That's a bummer because you're missing the information. You're missing the opportunity. When I started going, okay, what makes me anxious is unique. It won't make you anxious, but what is true for both of us is if you sit down, you get present, you breathe and you go, what is my anxiety trying to tell me? You're going to hear the answer. What was I thinking, feeling, or doing that? Because I notice I'm anxious. Oh, I was around so-and-so. Your so-and-so is going to be different from my so-and-so, but my, that's my body's job. It's trying to communicate with me. And so there are very general things that we can teach each other to handle their lives and their unique experiences, because ultimately it is my responsibility to be happy. It's my God-given right to be happy. And I will not leave this planet without figuring it out. And if you can start to kind of get that attitude, you're going to figure more out for yourself than somebody, a doctor will in five minutes. And if you have a great ally, boy, that's awesome. But if you don't, I don't want anybody listening to think there isn't hope because you're capable of doing it sincerely. Yeah. I remember kind of in our journey, trying to find help for um, a family member. I talked to maybe hundreds, if not thousands of people in similar situation, and everyone had a unique story about their challenges in mental health care with mental health care. And one person told me that the system is not utilizing the main resource that is patient's ability to heal and we're not engaging people enough in their care and we're not fostering their kind of sense of agency to change their relationship with symptoms, maybe from, you know, trying to battle the symptom of depression uh, and, you know, accept and work through this in and through as opposed to, you know, trying to battle it. So it's a, it's a you know, I think super valuable insight and it's something to um, think about definitely as we try to transform mental health care going forward. I also, you know, I want to encourage entrepreneurs that are listening. There's a lot of money to be made. Like if that's what we need to scale these systems there, you know, why don't, psychiatric institutes or why don't emergency rooms have a building next door where you can go and start to learn these skills because they're the first responders. They're seeing people, 
you know, there should be joint hospitals, you know, where you as an internist can go, you know what, I'm prescribing my client a ton of anti-anxietals and antidepressants. I'm going to write you a prescription to go next door where we know there's a curriculum that can help you because people are desperate. They will do anything. There's just sadly nowhere to go with really practical tools. And that's why I've been so inspired to build them and prove them, you know, for the last 20 years is oddly, not a lot of people, you know, the weird privilege of my life has been that I've had to figure this out for myself. I didn't want to kill myself. So I had to ask myself now, what, what am I going to do different today than I did yesterday? And I'm going to take notes and I'm going to see if it works. And if it works, I'm going to figure out why. And if it didn't work, I'm going to try something else. I did that my whole life because I want to be happy and it wasn't taught. So it's been an honor of my lifetime that my life has forced me to learn these things. And I took the time and I'm so glad I made this the priority of my life. I never let my fame distract me from this priority. And that's a rare privilege. I ended up having the money as well later in my life to stop and really figure this out. And not many people have that luxury. Everybody's busy with a career. Everybody's busy with children stopping to learn these things. Most psychologists don't have great self-care. Most psychologists aren't even practicing these things. So, and that's not an insult. That's just life is busy. Life is overwhelming. And, you know, sometimes the most valuable thing is that I had to learn how to transmute a poison because I was dying and I have figured out how to turn that into an antidote. And it's my honor to share whatever I can with people. Thank you. It's a story of incredible resilience. Very inspiring. Uh, I'm sure you hear that a lot. Jewel, where could our listeners find out a little more information about your approach and your foundation? People can check out our foundation, Inspiring Children. We also have a free sister website of free mental health tools. A lot of the curriculum we do with our kids. You can see that at Jewel Never Broken. And then because, you know, doctor, I was fascinated at a young age about, you know, how do I describe it? I realized I needed an education in a lot of areas I didn't have. I knew I needed to learn how to advocate for myself as a patient, right? Medicine, like physical health. I needed to gain emotional fitness. I needed to gain these areas that would lead to me being a happy whole human. And so I started a wellness uh, festival called the wellness experience that basically takes my 35 years of studying nutrition, learning how to advocate for myself in the medical fields, learning how to advocate and learn about emotional health, relationship health, all these types of things. And we make it accessible um, as a festival and as an online opportunity where you can learn about everything from nutrition to, you know, everything we've been talking about. And that's at the wellness experience.com. So Jewel, we would love you to sing a song for us if if that's okay i would love to uh this is a song called grateful i wrote it about the first time i was able to stop a panic attack on my own um i had written that list we spoke of earlier of the things that dilate me and the things that contract me and i had practiced for maybe six months to start to notice the precursors to my panic attack when my system was ramping up and to be able to intervene, you know, it took a lot of, a lot of work, but I was noticing the symptoms of my, you know, sympathetic nervous system ramping up. And so I looked at my list of dilated and 
you know, I realized you can't be in two states at once. You can't be dilated and contracted. It's one or the other. And so I wanted to see if I could hack my way out of a contracted state by forcing myself to engage wholeheartedly in something on my dilated list. And I chose gratitude. The trick to doing this, you know, for anybody that wants to try it is that it has to be your whole body engaged. It can't just be, I'm grateful because that's not actually changing your physical state. What we want to do is stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system to engage. And that means you have to have a genuine emotion. You have to think of something that rocks your world. You have to have the emotion of it running through your body. And what that does is it creates a physiological change. It'll cause your vascular system to dilate. It'll cause the blood pattern flow in your brain to change, you know, cause when you're having a panic attack, the frontal lobes go offline, the blood drains out of your brain where your reasoning centers are. And so this starts to cause brain to, to use its blood going back into the processing logic center, reasoning centers in the frontal lobes. And then it changes all your neurotransmitters. So it's such a simple practice, but there's a lot of physiology um, and science behind it. I didn't know all of this at the time. I just knew dilated and contracted. And so I decided to use gratitude. I was feeling really sorry for myself on the street corner because I was homeless and was like, what on earth am I going to be thankful for? But I knew that observation and curiosity caused me to be present. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to get curious and observant about my surroundings. What that does is it actually starts your blood to flow, right? Because your brain has to start processing color and sight and things that are in the moment. And then I saw the sunlight coming through a tree and it was really beautiful. And it cast this shadow on my skin. And it reminded me of being a little girl in Alaska and all the times I was sitting you know, laying on my back in a meadow, looking at the sun coming through the trees. And I suddenly was just overwhelmed with this profound gratitude that I was alive and what an act of absolute defiance it was to just take one breath, to not die, that I was here figuring it out, fighting to figure it out and that I hadn't given up. And I suddenly was grateful for myself, which was weird because I loathed myself 99% of the time. And the next thing I knew, a half hour had passed and I was absorbed in this world um, of discovery and and beauty, no matter where I was. And so this is a song, it's a new song, um, but it's about gratitude and just the power that our happiness is our own. If you want this, it is yours to have. When everything's wrong When I can't find my song When darkness is all I see There is a remedy It's all the little things That make the world go round It's all the little things that are most powerful. There's no politician, no sky to die. Cause no one can take the love from my heart. And the sun gonna shine in this heart of mine. The sun gonna shine in this heart of mine. 
sound Is your own life crashing down When your friends, they don't come around Yeah, there's one true thing I found It's all the little things and the bells that ring the green, green grass and the birds that sing. I'm gonna choose the bright side to see. And no one, no one, no one can take that from me. Cause the sun gonna shine in this heart of mine. The sun gonna shine in this heart of mine. The sun gonna shine. Oh, it's true, cause I can always be grateful. So bring it on, bring it on now. Bring it on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on now. Cause I'm singing on, I'm singing on, I'm singing on now. Yeah, I'm singing on, I'm singing on, singing on. Thank you so much, Jewel, for that beautiful song. What an amazing way to end this episode. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. I am sure so many of our listeners will have been inspired by your experience and your journey and your art. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Great. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Everyone Has a Story Talking About Mental Health. Thank you for being part of the conversation and see you on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app.